The reading this evening is taken from Ezekiel chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me to and fro among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you, and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you, and make flesh come upon you, and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you, and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, This is what the sovereign Lord says, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied, and as he commanded me, and breath entered them, they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says, O my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, Take a stick of wood and write on it, belonging to Judah and the Israelites associated with him. Then take another stick of wood and write on it, Ephraim's stick, belonging to Joseph and all the house of Israel associated with him. Join them together into one stick so that they will become one in your hand. When your countrymen ask you, won't you tell us what you mean by this? Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in Ephraim's hand, and of the Israelite tribes associated with him, and join it to Judah's stick, making them a single stick of wood, and they will become one in my hand. Hold before their eyes the sticks you have written on, and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone. I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all of them, and they will never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or or with any of their offenses, for I will save them from all their sinful backsliding, and I will cleanse them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and they will have 
they will all have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. They will live in the land I gave to my servant Jacob, the land where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children will live there forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers, and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy, when my sanctuary is among them forever. This is God's word. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Father, for some of us, we come to the, perhaps the one bit of the book of Ezekiel that we actually know and have come across before. Uh, perhaps for many of us, it'll still be very strange and distant from where we are. But uh, what is clear from it is that we need your help desperately. So even this evening, we pray that your life-giving spirit would uh, open up these words to us. So we understand them rightly. We're changed by them, shaped by them to live for you. Amen. About 20 years ago, I spent the summer, uh, three months of the summer, in Nicaragua. You get that, it's my good pronunciation, it gets downhill from, down, from there. But in Nicaragua, on a very remote island in the, uh, the middle of Lake, uh, lake Nicaragua, a uh, big lake, small island, about the size of the Isle of Wight. And it all felt very adventurous at the time because it was quite remote. There was a ferry went to this island once a week. And uh, when you were on the island, to get off the island, you'd have to get, on a Tuesday morning, you'd get the bus at 4 a.m., which took you round to the ferry port at about 8. And then you got the ferry, and you know, that was it. So it all felt very exciting and remote. And I was there, part of a little team. We were building a school uh, for about three months. And it was uh, ex- incredibly exciting, apart from the food. Beans and rice every day gets you down after a while. Um, but uh, it, was, it was a fairly exciting time. Uh, until I came down with malaria. That was less good. Um, and uh, so there was a, few, a period of a few days when um, I just thought, ooh, I am quite sick in a way I've not known before. Perhaps in a slightly dramatic fashion, I started writing a letter to my parents, dear mum and dad. You were right, I shouldn't have come. Um, Sorry about that. Uh, Had a good time. Uh, Anyway, sorry, goodbye. Um, But uh, after about four days, I was able to get the once a week ferry to the mainland, to the capital, uh, flown back to the UK. I had spent a few weeks in the tropical disease uh, hospital. Um, now, when you're there, it's not very sociable as a place, that hospital, because you're all in your little um, cubicles on your own because you're infectious and uh, you don't want to contaminate one another. But every now and again, you're sort of really allowed to shuffle out into the corridor feeling feeble and uh, you get to know. So I got to know the guy in the room next door to me was a chap called Jim. Uh, he was a couple of years older than me. And uh, one day I shuffled out into the corridor and uh, Jim had gone. And I was, well. So I said to the nurse, oh, I'm. Jim's gone then. I'm surprised. He was looking a bit rough yesterday. Yes, he died. Oh. People do die, you know, was her phrase. And then she walked off. Tough love. Um, (laughs) But actually, for me, that was quite a a moment of realization. People do die, you know. 
Now, of course, we know that. But for many of us, we're quite insulated from it. So not many of us will have our parents live with us or grandparents, uh, um, perhaps closer, uh, live with us and see them really go into decline. I mean, we're here living in London and they could be living hundreds of miles away. So we perhaps don't see the real decline of death. We just get slightly insulated from it. London generally is a fairly young city as opposed to the rest of the population or indeed internationally. We just, death, it just, yeah, it happens on the TV. Uh, It happens to a relative over there. But often we can be insulated for quite some time. But death does happen, you know. It'll happen to all of us. It's inevitable. And the point of our passage tonight, the first half of that chapter, Ezekiel 37, is quite simply this. Death will come. And the only hope in the face of death is that the Word of God will bring the life-giving Spirit of God. That's it. And forgive me, I'll say that several times tonight. The only hope in the face of death is that the Word of God brings the life-giving Spirit of God to give life to people. Now, we're in this book of Ezekiel then, and uh, we've been saying as we worked our way through it, Ezekiel is, is essentially a book of two halves. Uh, he's a prophet uh, preaching in the, uh, the 6th century BC. He's preaching to a group of people who are in exile. Uh, they're living uh, in Babylon. Uh, the capital city was Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem um, uh, captured in 597, about 100,000 taken to, it would have been a work camp, essentially, a shanty town in Babylon. Now, for, um, for five years, uh, for first chapters, uh, chapters 1 to 33, Ezekiel has been preaching at them. It's going to get worse. Uh, don't expect to go back to Jerusalem. Don't put your hopes in yourselves because you are wretched. And this capital city that you long to get back to will be destroyed. 33 chapters of that, five years. Wasn't a popular man. Five years just preaching on and on and on like this. Uh, chapter 33, um, actually this last time, chapter 33, verse 21, the news comes. Jerusalem has fallen. And from then on, really, to the end of the book, chapter 48, it's good news. It's good news. It's messages of hope. And uh, in this very vivid picture uh, that God gives to Ezekiel in chapter 37, God says, I will bring life to those who are dead. My words will bring my life-giving spirit to create life in those who are dead. But as we work our way through it, we need to... um, The Bible uses, in one sense, death in at least three senses, and three senses matter for us tonight. What the people here in Ezekiel in the 6th century were experiencing was, I guess you could call, a national death. They were distraught and... Hopeless. So verse 11 captures it uh, very well. Their own words, the words of the people. Chapter 37, verse 11. They say, the people say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Dead, as the, the metaphor goes on to explain. And perhaps you can envisage that. Perhaps um, uh, it's something like 1962, uh, Cold War, height of the Cold War. And extraordinarily, the UK gets invaded by the Soviet Union. And a million people from the city of London are taken off to a work camp in Siberia. 
Now, how do you feel? You feel cut off from everyone you love. You feel hopeless. You feel, we will die here. Well, that's how they were feeling. Uh, that's, how, that's their expression. This expression, our bones are dried up. Our hope is gone. It's a, it's a recurrent one that you get in the um, Old Testament, Proverbs 17, verse 22. A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. It's a fairly common metaphor, but here it really is absolutely bleak. Our bones are dried. We are miserable, hopeless, cut off. National death. Uh, then, of course, there's a, a spiritual death that the Bible would speak about as well. A sense in which, uh, throughout the, since Genesis chapter 3 in the Bible, well, the whole of humanity has been in exile from the presence of God, cut off from God, exiled from his presence, and therefore without hope in the world spiritually dead. Yes, walking, living, breathing, dancing, etc., etc., but spiritually dead, spiritually in exile, spiritually cut off from the living God. Okay, so there's a national death, a spiritual death, and then, of course, ultimately, there's physical death. Physical death, when these bones, this life is a lifeless corpse. People do die, you know. They do die. Actually, for all three of them, the only hope for a national death for the people back then, for spiritual death, for physical death, the only hope is the Word of God bringing the life-giving Spirit of God to create life. That's the only hope there is. Let's work our way through it. Uh, Three things to say. The passage breaks down into uh, three little things. Uh, The first is this. The people then, back in Ezekiel's day, the people were spiritually dead in exile. The people were spiritually dead in exile. Chapter 37, verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out uh, by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. I don't think this is uh, really. He's uh, taken up and uh, dropped down, a sort of helicopter ride by God's hand uh, in that sense. Uh, Given the other two times in the book, chapter 3, chapter 11, that he is lifted up by the hand of God, it's quite clear it's a vision. So I think here it's a vision. Ezekiel is given a vision. But in those two other occasions, chapter 3, chapter 11, he has those visions. And at the end of them, he collapses on the floor. So when Ezekiel is picked up again, he's not thinking, woo, it's like a fairground. He's thinking, oh, this is going to be intense. It always is. And God puts him in a, excuse me, God puts him in a valley. Always bad. Not sort of architecturally or not architecturally. Not aesthetically, you can enjoy valleys. But biblically, valley is bad. The valley is a bad place. Next week, we get to the climax of the book. Ezekiel is taken to a very high mountain, i.e. everything is going well. So it's like a metaphor going on here as well. You're on a very high mountain in the Bible? Good. You're in a deep valley? Bad. Biblical language, okay? So he's taken up. He knows it's going to be intense. He's dropped in this valley. And what's in the valley? Well, it's not very cheerful. It's full of bones. Bones. Full of bones, verse 1. And Ezekiel was made to walk amongst them just to check what's going on here. So verse 2, he led me to and fro among them. I saw in a great, a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. So this is not a, you know, 
This is not a bone you could chuck to, you know, you could throw to Fido and say, "Here you go, boy. Have a little lick upon this. There's plenty to get out of that." Nothing. Dry, absolutely dry. Dry bones in a desert, bleached white by the sun. Nothing. No life there. Very, very bleak. Now. On one level, if, if you've read your Bible to this point,、uh, halfway through, this is unsurprising. All the way back in Deuteronomy, at the end of Deuteronomy, if you hear about this time last year, Deuteronomy chapter 28, God had said to the people, "When you go into the land,、uh, if you if you obey me and love me, things will go well. If you disobey me, I will scatter your carcasses on the mount on the, in the valleys, and no one will bury you," which is a sign of being. In the sign of the times, if no one buries you, you're cursed. I mean, if you die, you want a decent burial just to be left out. They're cursed. So here's a people who are absolutely dead, and they're cursed. There is no life here. It's dead, 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 dead bones, dry. This is not like a sort of Hollywood film where there's a fight between Goody and Baddy, and Goody is sort of on his last legs. But just manages to rouse himself for one final.、Um, it's not that he's nearly, you know, not that there's just a little bit of life left in the people. Not that they might just rouse themselves for one last hurrah. Dead, nothing. You're not really expecting that pile of bones to get up and do a dance. It's nothing. Dead. That's the point. Dead, dead. Dry bones. There is no life here. And、uh, God says, here's a picture. Then, verse eleven. Just to explain, verses one to ten of the vision, eleven to fourteen, the explanation really. But、uh, verse eleven, here's God's explanation: Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Everyone. It's representing everyone, dead. So it's a fairly bleak day for Ezekiel. So, and then God asks him a question, verse three. God says,、uh, "Son of man, can these bones live?" And Ezekiel,、uh, very polite and very wise, says, "Well, you know the answer to that one, God,、uh, which is a very shrewd, shrewd answer. In one sense, of course, you're not expecting a pile of dry bones to can can they live naturally? No, there's nothing there. But you are God, so you can do what you want.、Uh, can these bones live? Well, you know that. You know that. Okay." So the people were spiritually dead in exile. They're experiencing national death, but they're cut off from God here as well. Second little thing, then, prophesying. Prophesying brought the life-giving spirit. Verses four to nine. Prophesying brought the life-giving spirit.、Uh, so verse four. Then he said to me, "Prophesy to these bones and say to them, 'Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord.'" Now, forgive the obvious point. That's ridiculous. <laughs> That's ridiculous. It's a dry bone. Bones don't have ears. They don't do it. Have you seen that advert?、Uh, seen the VW advert?、Uh, it's a favourite advert in our house. The、uh, the VW advert with the little boy. He's probably about five. He's dressed up as Darth Vader, and he goes up to the you know like the pot on the stove and. 
and not a lot happens to it. And uh, he goes up to the dog and uh, tries to use the force on the dog, goes up to the car, daddy's car, and nothing happens. Of course, eventually it does. It doesn't really work, this illustration at all. But um, uh, he goes up to the car, beep, 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 uh, and uh, daddy presses the buzzers and... Uh, so the, the car sort of flashes its lights and the boy says, oh, I've got the force. Ooh, and that's fairly spooky. But in one sense, it's called nonsense. He's going up, you know, the boy in that advert, he's going up to a pot. As, as much as you and I could, we could go up to, I don't know, this keyboard. and We're not going to move it with our hands. Preaching to a bone, that is a waste of time. It's a complete waste of time. They have no ears. They're dead. Preach the bones, son of man, he says. And yet, well, this is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I'll make breath enter you and you'll come to life. I'll attach tendons to you, make flesh come upon you, cover you with skin, breathe in you. You'll come to life, then you'll know that I'm the Lord. Okay, all right, Lord, I'll have a go. So, verse 7, I prophesied as I was commanded and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone to bone, and I looked, and I saw tendons and flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them. <laughs> so, uh, have a go preaching at those bones. You know, oh, and these things start you know, rattling together, and uh, coming together, and there's, there's life. Extraordinary. Extraordinary that this takes place. Ezekiel speaks, and it happens. There's life. The only problem being, there's no breath in them, verse 8. No breath as yet. So what you've got is a, you've got a, a body, you've got a corpse now, but it is still a dead corpse. And what it needs is breath. Now, some will be familiar with this. Ten times in this little section, uh, 9 to 14, you get this word, breath, or spirit. It doesn't come out, it doesn't get translated every time, because the Hebrew is um, deliberate in its, uh, the way it's formed. Breathe the breath, Ezekiel. It doesn't quite work in English, so it's not always uh, translated. But ten times you get this word, ruach, spirit, or breath. And you have to choose how you translate it. But the two are intimately linked because the breath of God is his spirit. That's what's lacking here, the spirit of God. So you see what happens, verse 8 to 10, if you translate it in that way. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no spirit in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the spirit Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come from the four winds, O spirit, and spirit ent into these slain so that they may live. I prophesied as he commanded me, and spirit entered them. They came to life and stood on their feet, a vast army. So do you see what's going on here? There's this sort of two-stage process to these this people coming back to life. I'm not sure we're meant to copy it as a two-stage process. It's meant to be an echo of Genesis chapter 2, when God forms the man, Adam, from the dust of the earth. And then we're told he breathes into his nostrils 
and breathes life into Adam through the nostrils. And if you've, been, if you've read your Bible, you're meant to think, okay, so this thing, these, these bones form into a human being and then more breath and they come fully to life. That's a bit like Adam. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. The point is, here is a second creation. Adam was nothing. There was no Adam. God formed this man from the dust, breathes into him and he lives. These people here, they are nothing. God forms them and breathes into them. It's a second creation, just like Genesis 2. That's what's going on. But I think the main point here is the link between what Ezekiel does and what God does. So Ezekiel is told, Ezekiel, you speak, you prophesy, and then my breath enters. That's how it's going to work. There's an inextricable link between them. So verse 4, prophesy to the bones and say, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 6, I'll attach tendons to you, I'll, I'll make flesh come upon you, cover you with skin, I'll put my spirit in you. As Ezekiel preaches, the spirit enters. Verse 9, prophesy to the spirit, prophesy son of man, and so it happens. Verse 10, I prophesied as God commanded me, and spirit entered them. Do you see, I mean, it's just repeatedly throughout the passage, Ezekiel speaks, God's spirit is at work. Because the word of God brings the life-giving spirit of God. That's how it's meant to be. That's how it is throughout the scriptures. That's how it was in creation. So Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, by the breath of his mouth all their host. So how were the heavens made? What was it? By the word of God or by the spirit of God? It was both working together. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, by the spirit all their hosts. You can't separate the two. See, God doesn't say, Ezekiel, come and have a look at this. Come and have a look. It's boys, you've had a miserable few years, haven't you, mate? Let's be honest. I've given you all these bleak things to say, Ezekiel. But come on, let me just, let me show you what I'm going to do. You stand there, watch this. Okay, ready? And all these people come to life. Good, hey? Good, hey, Ezekiel. doesn't do that. He says, Ezekiel, you, you preach my word, and then my spirit will enter them. Why did you do it that way, God? That's how I'm doing it. That's how I operate. When my word goes out, my spirit can enter people and give them life. The two are just tied together. You can't separate their action in that way. Don't, that's a mistake to try and do so. God says, as my word goes out, my life-giving spirit is at work. That's how it is. So prophesying brought the life-giving spirit. The third little thing, the obvious conclusion of this, verse 10. The Lord opened graves. So verse 10. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood on their feet. A vast army. Lots. Here then is the hope for uh, national death for the people in exile. And the explanation is given, isn't it, uh, uh, verse uh, 12. Uh, Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, O my people, I'm going to open your graves, bring you up from them, I'll bring you back to the land of Israel. 
Then you, my people, will know that I, the Lord, will open your graves and bring you up from there. I'm going to open your graves. That is, I'm going to take you back to the land where you've been exiled from. Okay. Even back then, they must have thought to themselves, it's a very, very strong way of saying we're just going back to our homeland. I'll open up your graves. I will, you're dead, and I'll open up your grave. It's quite a, in terms of a metaphor, it's a fairly powerful one to make a small point. I mean, you or I could say, I'm returning to my homeland if the UK isn't. We could say, this summer, I am going to France. I am going to wherever, Italy. Uh, you know, we do that. We travel. We move from land to land. That's one thing. To say, this summer, I'm going to re- open graves and raise people up. We'd be arrested for grave robbing. You see, there's quite a difference, isn't there? I'm going to take you from one land to another land. Well, we can do that. We can move. I'm going to open up graves, take people who are dead, and give them life. That's quite a strong metaphor to use for just moving from one country to another. Do you see how this prophecy, it is looking beyond itself. Yes, they're going to, God is saying, I will take you back to the land, but there's more than that. There's a bit more than that. So let's, let's sort of Push it a little bit further, these three points. Let's have another go at these three points. Um, I guess trying to update them for us. So let me put it this way. First of all, we'll meet the dead. It's the first thing. We'll meet the dead. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. No need to turn. But uh, Paul puts it this way. You were, talking to Christians, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. You were dead before you became a Christian. So the very unflattering picture of the Bible is anyone who's not a Christian is spiritually dead. That is, cut off from God in exile from him, with no hope of a physical future, no hope of being with him, spiritually dead. And so, you know, if you're a Christian here tonight, you'll meet the dead. You, you may live with them. You probably work with them. Look, I know it's completely unflattering, but if you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, the Bible says you, you're the living dead. Now, I know that sounds like a bad punk rock group or something, or indeed a zombie film. But um, of course we're living, we're breathing, we can move, we can, you know, we can rejoice and have all sorts of good times, but spiritually dead, cut off from God and with no sensitivity to him. Spiritually dry bones, unresponsive. Not, not really listening to what's going on. Spiritually, that's the natural human condition. Now, it may be obvious to some of you that's the truth. I mean, I encounter this all the time. This is what I kind of do. I stand up and preach. And uh, Sunday, you know, lots of people here will be Christians. Some occasions, yesterday at a wedding I spoke at, I take it the majority of the people who are listening wouldn't have called themselves Christians. Once it's like briefly explained the Christian message, spiritually they're dead. They have no hope unless they put their faith in Jesus Christ. 
And countless people, of course, came up afterwards and said, that was a lovely sermon, Vicar. That was a lovely sermon. I mean, you really are very good at what you do. You think you're dead. You, how did you, you did not, I don't know how you can say that to me because you didn't hear anything that I said. If you think that. People spiritually dead. And if, you know, for those of you who are Christians here tonight, you know that. You know that. You, there are people you meet and you, you explain, you try to explain Christianity or you try and explain the reason for your faith and people just don't get it. And you think, why didn't, what am I doing wrong? Or what are, why are we missing one another here? Spiritually, they have no ears. And so for those of us who are Christians, we need to remember that Many that we meet, many that we love, spiritually are dead. And it's just helpful just to remind yourself of that. So as I gazed out of my um, front window this week, I reminded myself, yeah, there's Nick and Susie, our neighbors, and they're dead. And there's Jeremy from next door, and he's dead. And there's Vaz and Lily who run the news agents, and they're dead. And there's Peter, the baker, and he's dead. Oh, look there, the kids playing in the street. There's uh, Jamie and uh, Aamidi, and they're dead. Plenty of life. You know, children, woo, noise, all excitement, etc. Plenty of life, but spiritually dead. Cut off from God without hope beyond this life for the future dead and sometimes those of us who are Christians we, we just need to remind ourselves of that people are dead and they need well they need the word of God dead now if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian I know this is not very flattering but you can return to him you just need the word of God. You need to just read it and understand. Let him speak to you. Let him bring you his life-giving spirit. We'll come back to that. So we'll meet the dead, uh, as Ephesians 2 puts it. Second thing, prophesying will bring the spirit. Look, let me just explain that. I know that's jargon. Just doing what Ezekiel did, explaining, preaching, speaking Christian truth to people who are dead. Prophesying brings the spirit as... Um, You get the example in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Peter preaches to this crowd of uh, several thousand. And we're told, verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. The word of God brings the life-giving spirit of God. Now, that doesn't feel spectacular often. And it would be helpful, wouldn't it, if someone, since you you opened a Bible and it crackled with electricity and everyone went, ooh, something, ooh, something's going to happen now. Well, sorry about that. It doesn't. I mean, you could probably get a battery and make it happen. But um, (laughs) it doesn't feel that exciting. Often you, you, know, you read your Bible, if you're a Christian, and it doesn't, doesn't feel that anything dramatic is happening. Or you have, that, you have those occasions where 
you're speaking to someone who, who wouldn't yet call themselves a Christian. They say, you say, look, can I just explain you know, what, what Jesus is saying here? And you're explaining it, and they look at you as if you're a moron. And you think, what am I, what am I doing? I've got this book from thousands of years ago, and I think it's going to do something. Well, yeah, because God has promised that it will. That when the Word of God is explained, preached, taught, that brings the life-giving spirit of God. doesn't feel spectacular, but it is. And it's very lovely, isn't it, that God has given us this picture of what happens. That it is like him breathing upon us. You get this repeated picture in the scriptures. So when someone becomes a Christian, what happens? It's not, not aggressive, but God essentially breathes upon them. And this picture of great tenderness from Genesis 2, God breathes life into the nostrils. It's a picture of great tenderness that, G, that uh, we're given. Do some of you remember at the end of John's gospel, John chapter 20, you get the risen Jesus Christ. He's died, he's risen again. He meets his disciples in an upper room. And uh, uh, John 20, verse 22, he <sighs> breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And at first glance you think, what is all that about? But he's just reenacting what had taken place in Genesis chapter 2. The, the picture you get from Ezekiel 37. God will tenderly breathe his spirit and you become a Christian. But he does that when the word of God is explained. Now two obvious implications of that. I will mention the first. The first would be, do trust God. When he says that his word brings his spirit, trust him in that. Don't despair. Don't look elsewhere for great hope. I mean, what else do you think the hope is for people who are dead spiritually and facing death physically in the future? What do you want? Do you want a change of government? Do you want a big government-run program? Do you want a mass billboard campaign? What are you expecting? The only hope for people who are dead is the Spirit of God changing them. There's no other hope for people in that condition. And God has said, this is how it happens. So don't lose confidence in that. Of course, we know it. Yeah, that is true. I know that is true. I've been a Christian for years. But sometimes you just fade from it, drift from it. It's been the most lovely rebuke to me uh, over the last uh, few weeks. You know, preaching through Ezekiel, and let's be honest, some of these um, passages they've been, you know, quite full on, quite aggressive. They're not, you know, for someone who wouldn't yet call themselves a Christian. My first instinct is, oh, let me take you to Ezekiel 16. It'll tell you you're a whore. You'll really enjoy that. That's not my gut instinct, what to do with someone who wouldn't yet call themselves a Christian. There are plenty of nicer, more sensible places to go. But preaching through this, you know, this, this book of vivid, aggressive pictures in some sense, on Sunday nights, people have become Christians over the last month. That's been the most beautiful rebuke to me. Just simply explaining the word of God and... God brings his life-giving spirit to create new life. It's marvelous. So don't lose confidence in that. Not for a moment. It's what he does. The second little implication for those of us who are Christians. We have the word of God which can transform people's lives. We're surrounded by people in our workplaces, in in our streets, who are dead. Don't deprive them of that. I felt that strongly for myself this week. Don't deprive people 
Don't deprive dead people of the only thing that can bring them life. Just think of that for a moment in physical terms. Sometimes, of course, um, physically, sometimes death is a release. My, um, my wife's uh, grandmother, uh, 93, she's a Christian woman, and she says now, I'm ready to go home. She's got dementia, and that's very sad, because you meet her and she doesn't recognize you, or she says, well, you know, Oh, you were here yesterday, weren't you, when you haven't seen her for, for a couple of months? It's very sad. But when you get her in a lucid moment, she says, I just want to go home. And of course, some point, sometimes death is a release. And it'll, it'll be a great celebration, actually, when she goes. Other times, of course, death is just miserable. It's just miserable. And when you see, that's the most stark example of parents burying a child could be an infant, could be an adult, but there's something just, we know it's wrong when the parents bury a child. It's not meant to be that way. And you'll hear parents say something like, I'd swap places with them. I would do anything to give them my life. I'd give up anything, my house, I'd live on the streets. Can I, I would do anything to give life to this child of mine that is dead. If you're a Christian, you have the word of God and there are plenty around who are dead and it costs nothing to share it with people. A little bit of your reputation, maybe. It costs nothing. We have the word of God which can bring life to people who are dead. Let's not, let's not hide it. Don't be ashamed of it. Prophesying will bring the Spirit. Last then, of course, the Lord will open graves, as he promised to do. The Lord will open graves. Let me again give you a, a, the follow-on passage from Ephesians, verses 4 and 5. So we're told, uh, uh, naturally, dead in transgressions. Uh, Ephesians 2, verse 4. But... But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead. You realize, don't you, that every time someone becomes a Christian, that's an extraordinary miracle. That's an extraordinary miracle. People get very excited about little healing miracles. I had a twinge, oh, my, my abductor was sore and, and it got healed. Praise the Lord. Well, okay, yeah, that's okay. But someone becoming a Christian, that's the greatest miracle of all because God has taken someone who is spiritually dead and given them life. That's extraordinary. Can you do that? You cannot. I can't do that. None of us can do that. God takes people who are dead and gives them life. That's extraordinary. God will open graves. When you become a Christian... What happens is you are united to Jesus Christ in his death for sins and his resurrection to new life. You have new life. You are risen with him. There's a sense in which your grave of spiritual death has been opened and you'll live again. Exile's over. You're no longer cut off from God. You're brought near to him. It's maybe familiar to many, but um, of course, in, in, certainly in literature, there's, there's no better picture than the one that C.S. Lewis gives in, um, in, in Narnia, the line, the witch in the wardrobe. 
the dead and risen Aslan. It's meant to be a picture of Jesus Christ. It's the penultimate chapter of the book. Aslan, he's died, but he's risen again. And there's a battle going on, and uh, the Narnians are losing, and um, they need reinforcements. The Narnians are losing, the White Witch is winning, it's all going badly. But Aslan's alive, and he says to the two uh, girls, uh, Susan and Lucy Pevensey, come with me. Chucks them on his back, and goes for a big run, and then a bit of a fly. You can do that if you're a magical lion, um, who is God in the, in the sort of metaphor. So he goes, of course, to the White Witch's lair. Do you remember what happens there? She's turned all her enemies to stone. And, uh, and, and, and he describes it beautifully. Aslan goes up to another lion, first of all, and just <sighs> breathes on the lion. And then plods along to a, a dwarf and <sighs> breathes on the dwarf next. And the two girls, it's a bit odd. And then as Lewis writes it, they looked at the lion. And just like a piece of paper that just starts to catch, there's a crack of light appears, and then it grows. And the light appears all over this lion until eventually he, he shakes his hind legs and shakes his mane and roars, and he's alive again. Of course, it's this Lewis's very lovely way of saying just what a Genesis 2 or Ezekiel 37 or John 20 would say. The risen Jesus Christ <sighs> breathes life upon the dead, and they come to life in order to serve him, in order to go and join with him in a fight against a white witch. You don't have to do that when you become a Christian, but you get the point. He gives people new life in order to serve him. He'll open graves. That's what happens. He'll overcome your spiritual death. And, of course, the implication of that is that when you die, he overcomes your physical death. And you go to be with him. Do you have that confidence? Olive does. That's my great nan in law. My wife's grandmother. I want to go home now. To be honest with you, dear, I'm ready for a new body. I'm ready to go home now. I'm ready to live properly and put this shadow of a life behind me. Do you know that? The only hope, the only hope in the face of death is that the word of God will bring the life-giving spirit of God into your life. You may think, yeah, I've been a Christian years. That's happened to me, you know, 10, 20 years ago, whatever. Yeah, but you still need that word of God to sustain and grow and flourish the life within you. The only hope for this world is the word of God. Bringing the life-giving spirit of God. Creating life out of bones and death. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you again for uh, this picture of these bones coming to life. Uh, again, as with much of this book of Ezekiel, it's not very flattering about us. But it does give us enormous hope. Hope that one day we'll be alive again, we'll be resurrected. We can, we can triumph and conquer over death. Because even here and now, you can take us from spiritual death and exile from you 
to knowing you, to being in relationship with you. And so we pray, wherever we're at in our thinking, that we would come to the word of God and expect it to bring new life where there is death. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.